This conversation between Carol Schwartz and Laura Tingle was recorded at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, at a special event for the University of Melbourne's Pathways to Politics alumni. This event was produced by Trawala Foundation lead partner and the University of Melbourne program partner for ACCA's exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to our first alumni event of 2018 and hopefully the first of many that we're all going to have together because, as you know, we're absolutely committed to giving all our alumni the opportunity to get together, to share experiences, to share what's working, to share what's not working, uh, what we're putting ourselves forward to and for, and um, just sharing ideas. Hi. Um, so I'd like to welcome you all, and again, a special thanks to my partners, Melbourne University, um, John and Meredith and Andrea here. Um, as you know, Melbourne University has just been a fantastic partner in the Pathways to Politics program. And uh, I think that from year to year, we're just going to go from strength to strength because the commitment to it is absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much. And also thank you so much for partnering with us in this fabulous exhibition. Um, when Max Delaney, the director, came to see me and told me about um, this fantastic feminist exhibition that he was putting together, um, how could we say no that we wanted to be part of it? It's, it's a great exhibition and I hope you all have time to go through it and maybe come back and be, bring your friends and family. Um, so I would like to start by acknowledging that we meet on the traditional land of the Bunwarong and pay my respects to the elders, past, present and future. And again, thank you so much, Max. Not only are we partnering in this fabulous exhibition, Max and his staff have been absolutely fantastic in facilitating our in-conversations um, and our uh, programs. So thank you very much, Max. It's been fantastic. So our applications for the 2018 cohort are actually opening on International Women's Day, March the 8th, which is very salubrious. And um, I hope you all encourage your friends, uh, your colleagues, and even people you don't know all that well, but who you think would, would really enjoy and benefit from the course, um, coming along and, and putting in an application. Because I think that even applying for the course is, um, is, is an experience in itself. And, um, and before I introduce um, Laura, our guest speaker tonight, I want to say thank you very much to you, Fiona Patton, for your great contribution to the program as, as a presenter and uh, also for being here tonight. So thank you so much for coming. So it's now my very great pleasure and honour to introduce Laura Tingle. Now, as you know, Laura was a presenter for us in our first year. Unfortunately, she had to go to Germany last year at the last moment and cover the election there, so uh, couldn't make it. So she very generously agreed to uh, come in this evening for our alumni event. And I think we're all very honoured and, and pleased that you were able to do that, Laura, so thank you. Um, 
So I'm going to read a little bit of Laura's CV. So Laura has over 35 years experience as a reporter covering markets, economics and politics. Laura has won two Walkley Awards and the Paul Lynham Award for Excellence in Press Gallery Journalism. Most recently, Laura was the greatly admired political editor for the Australian Financial Review, a panellist on ABC Insider's program and frequent guest on Radio National's Late Night Live. In 2017, Laura published an insightful book called In Search of Good Government, Great Expectations and Political Amnesia, which were both quarterly essays fabulous quarterly essays. I remember discussing political amnesia with you uh, in 2016. And in recent weeks, Laura has just been announced as chief political correspondent of the ABC's 7.30 program. So congratulations on that, or I should be congratulating the ABC, actually. Because <laughs> um, the ABC director of news, Gavin Morris, has described Laura as one of the great political journalists of her generation which I think we would all agree. Now, I just wanted to mention that um, this conversation is being recorded for podcast purposes. So if you ask a question, it will be recorded. So Laura, thanks again for coming tonight and um, congratulations on the appointment. Thank you. And um, I know you haven't had a chance to go through the exhibition, um, but hopefully when we finish, you will have. And um, I, I wanted to ask you as an opening question, w would you describe feminism as a, as a political movement? And, and if yes, do you think that it's been a success? Uh, well, what, what is a political movement? A political movement is um, people um, coming together around an idea um, and feminism has been a very strong, if morphing idea uh, through my adult lifetime, um, well, and earlier, I suppose, if you go back to Simone de Beauvoir and people like that. Um, so, it and it has become something that is entrenched, uh, and it has become something that's got different ambitions over time, um, you know, from birth control through to rights in the workplace. Uh, so, yes, I think it's, it is a political movement, not a conventional one, um, and I think it's been successful uh, because it's survived, it's changed. Um, women who are 20 or 30 years younger than I am have a completely different concept of what it might be, um, but they also have a completely different concept of what their lives can be because of feminism. So I think it has been a success. So why do you think there's a reluctance by someone like Julie Bishop or Michaela Cash to actually call themselves feminists? What are the connotations around the word that make them, um, you know, just not prepared to, to label themselves in that way? And yet Kelly O'Dwyer, um, in a very recent interview, said very proudly that she is a feminist. Uh, I think it's partly generational, um, and I think it's partly... Uh, if you look at how people like Julie and Michaelia have come up through the ranks, I think um, for a lot of women there is a view, look, I don't have to brand myself that, I'm just doing it. And I respect that, frankly. I mean, that's 
what they want to do, that's fine by me. I don't think you have to say, I'm a feminist, or not say you're a feminist. You know, you, you, you basically... So I, I, I respect the idea. I'm just doing it, and I'm showing, I'm showing that I'm good enough and as, as good as the boys and all those sorts of things. Um, you don't have to be out there saying it if you don't want to. Um, but I think that's where they're coming from. Although it is controversial when they don't call themselves feminists. Yeah. I mean, it always creates a lot of discussion. It does, um, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's like it creates discussion. Um, you know, they're, they're prepared to say that that's what they think, so that's fine with me. Mm. I always wonder why they don't define feminism and then say if feminism means, you know, the equal, equal rights between men and women then of course I'm a feminist and who isn't a feminist? Mm. I always wonder why they don't define the word first and then be prepared to sort of say, yes, I'm a feminist. Yeah. It sort of seems a bit strange. Yeah, but, I mean, they're from Western Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that's, that's what I was trying to get out of it. There's a secret. Okay. Now, one of the things that you touch on in your book is, is trust and... Um, Trust or the lack of trust is a huge issue in politics globally, but also very specifically in Australia. And how do you see this lack of trust in politicians and politics generally playing out over the next few years? Uh, well, it is it is a global thing and uh, it's interesting. Um, as you mentioned, I've been overseas a fair bit in the last six or eight months, I went to Germany. Uh, I went to uh, France as well to have a look at what um, Emmanuel Macron is doing there. And then I've been, uh, I've been in Europe again in the last couple of weeks. And the thing that's interesting to me about that is the very different ways people judge what, what is trustworthiness and how different political systems are dealing with that. Um, now, as a wild guess, most of us would sort of sit in this room and go, Angela Merkel, she's so great. You know, she's just fantastic. Uh, you know, the true leader of the free world, all that sort of stuff. But it was interesting being in Germany last year because there was this great disillusion with Merkel um, right across the political spectrum, not just from the right, but also from the left, because she was seen as this complete pragmatist um, and through her political career, that the one decision that she took, which broke that mould, was the decision to let in a, mil a million um, uh, migrants. Um, but in general, for example, on same-sex marriage, um, she resisted it and resisted it and resisted it until it became clear that the opposition parties were going to run on it in the election campaign. So she announced, "Oh, we're going to have a vote on it next week," and that actually drives people nuts. And it's because, I think, they sort of don't trust that she stands for anything. Um, Macron, by, by comparison, is this... I mean, he, he's sort of hilarious, you know. He's, um, <laughs> you should really try to read some of his speeches, um, which are, are a lot of the big ones, and they are big. He spoke for two hours at the Sorbonne last year. Um, and they're full of this language which is so unconditional, you know. Okay, we're going to fix Africa next. <laughs> and then after that, we'll fix the Middle East. Um, and he, once again, is 
trying a different way of dealing with trust. He's saying, look, I'm really going to go for it here. And, uh, you know, you've got to just, you've, you voted me in and I'm just, I'm just absolutely going for it. So I think uh, it, is, it is the sort of core issue uh, of, of what drives politics and it's the core issue in Australia. I mean, we get bogged down with all of this sort of rubbish quite a lot of the time, um, you know, with Barnaby Joyce being the latest example, which does feed into trust. Um, but I think it also depends on the, the it, well, sorry, it, 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 re, it, it, it relates to what it is we want our politicians to do and our sense of disappointment in them, which is the theme of my first essay. Uh, and I think the question of trust is a reflection of whether people have a firm view about what our politicians are going to try to do for them. And I would say in Australia at the moment, they don't. They don't really know what it is that governments are there for. And therefore, they don't know quite how to judge whether they're trustworthy. So it, it sort of trickles down into being a sort of a discussion about, you know, whether people are ripping off taxpayers' funds to, you know, have sex with people or, you know, taking helicopter rides. But I think there's a much more fundamental uh, issue there. And do you think that that is going to potentially result in conviction politicians like Jackie Lambie being, being elected as independents? And what will that mean for the Australian political landscape? Uh, I think it does lead to conviction politicians. Um, but I suppose I would also put it in the context of a, a two-party system which is sort of broken down. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when I was a kid, it was really clear what the Labor Party stood for and what the Liberal Party stood for. There were these very central ideas and it was quite clear to sort of say, well, that's what they stand for and that's what the, these guys stand for. In the sort of, it's not that we're in a post-ideological age, but we're in a much more complex age where both parties have this you know, plethora of decisions and positions which aren't built around a sort of central nucleus. And so that's naturally going to lead to a position where you've got um, conviction politicians on the rise. I don't think that that's actually a bad thing um, because, you know, it goes back to this question about trust. If you look at um, what Nick Xenophon is doing in South Australia, I mean, he's got quite an erratic collection of policies, if you think about it, um, and also a really bad ad which you can't help... To, you know, <laughs> I've um, seen it on Twitter. Yeah, it's I mean, funny. but it's a, it's a fantastic ad because you can't unsee it, so it's fantastic advertising. But everybody thinks they know Nick in South Australia. They think that he stands for, you know, doing the right thing, whatever that is. Uh, so, you know, it, it will transform politics, and I think that's not bad. It's only a reasonably recent phenomenon um, in, well, democracy is a fairly recent phenomenon, but, I mean, it's only a recent phenomenon that we've had this sort of two-party system. I mean, you know, for a very long time, you had a series of independent MPs, and I sort of think that that sort of makes things a bit more exciting. I don't know why we're sort of so stuck on majority government all the time. Boring. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the reason that, that we do get stuck on boring government is actually when deals are done that are actually very parochial and not necessarily in the national interest in order to pander to these independents. So, you know, a great lump of money is given to a particular town in a particular state 
because that's the only way the government's going to get a particular piece of legislation through. I mean, I don't think that makes an electorate particularly happy, do you? It all depends the way you look at it, Carol, I'd say. Um, look, politics is the art of the, the uh, possible and I thought the it was the art of the impossible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's a question of, you know, whether you sort of expect a lot, you know, of purity from people or not. You know, the, 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 the bits that I like of, of politics are where they come up with a really good policy outcome um, despite politics, if you, if you know what I mean. So, but let's presume that it is the case that um, in this world you're going to get lumps of money being directed to people to buy them off. The question is, is that of itself a bad thing or is the question what, what the lump of money is um, a good thing, if you like? I mean, if, you, if you're doing a trade-off uh, that is just going to be, you know, sprayed up against a wall and do nobody any good... Um, that's bad. But if you say, okay, well, we're going to give, um, I don't know, uh, do, 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 say $500 million to the Riverina to uh, stop uh, rising salt levels and, you know, get better, uh, better sort of crop uh, and irrigation systems in place, is that a bad thing? You know, it, it, it's, it's, that, it's in the eye of the beholder a bit. You know, yes, giving a slab of money to a particular area or a particular politician can be a bad thing, but it isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you can sort of get some quality into what that decision is. Um, I suppose I, I'd given it as an example of that, um, the GFC um, packages one and two, um, you know, where... They basically just gave out cash, which a lot of people were critical of, but you can make a very good argument, particularly for the first package, that it kept the economy going, even though a lot of people bought televisions with it. Um, the second package was more controversial, but um, it's, it, it is about how you actually slice the money up, not necessarily about the fact you're giving it in the first place. Mm. Well, I guess there would, would always be an argument around whether a crop is particularly sustainable mm. um, and whether it should be invested in. So mm. I think that I mean, if you, if that you could is get, always debatable. Yeah, if you, if, I mean, if you could get people to stop growing cotton in Australia, that to me would be a pretty good outcome, you know. Um, yes. But I don't know how you'd quite structure a, package, a policy package to do that. But if they were prepared to put some money into that, I would sort of, I would say sounds like a good idea to me. So. But instead, they're probably funding and more cotton being grown by, by giving the money to pander to an independent who, or, you know, a politician who, who's actually looking, who, to whom they're looking for support. Yeah. I, I don't think there's been anything really outrageous like that in Australia. I don't, you know, they, I mean, they, 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 I'm sure there've been some, but I don't think... Do you have any fact checkers here? Mm. He, he, it was for a hospital, he got money for the hospital, or, no, for the postal workers' centre or something, yeah. Look, it was, you know, I suppose this is, this is, um, this is, you know, I work with the sort of imperfections and, you know, shortcomings of politics all the time, which is probably why I've sort of got a sort of a lower threshold 
and you know maybe that's why they should take me out to the paddock and shoot me but you know <laughs> but it, that is just the way it is and you know there there've been some complete outrages over the years but overall i don't think they're you know, the, the, when it comes to, you know, there have been all sorts of bad policy decisions over the years. I'm not saying they haven't, but in terms of buying people off, I don't think there've been any completely outrageous, you know, corrupt decisions that you can't sort of see some benefit in somewhere. So. Um, in your book, In Search of Good Governance, mm. you, you talk about some of the ways in which federal governance has deteriorated over the last two decades. How do you think we can return to a state of good governance and what would you like to see in future federal politicians? Um, I think we have to, once again, sort of work out, and it's not a question of getting rid of a level of government because that probably is never going to happen. Um, uh, but I think there probably does need to be a, a discussion about what federal and state governments do and better and a better alignment of those things um, because I think it's sort of remains the case that the sort of transfer of political issues from the state and local level to federal politics has sort of happened in a fairly haphazard and sort of uh, curious way and uh, people have sort of bought in like federal governments have bought into traditional areas of state and local government control in a very haphazard, haphazard way, and it's meant that nobody's very clear in the electorate about which levels of government are responsible for things. So, for example, you had Kevin Rudd coming and saying, you know, the buck stops with me on hospitals, and um, if you don't pay all that much attention, you know, you might still be waiting for the buck to stop. You know, it's, it's not clear to most voters what it is that governments can and can't do. So I think we would be very well served by getting some clarity around that. And occasionally, the federal government saying, actually, this isn't an issue for us. This is actually a state issue. Um, and actually pulling back. But my thesis is that federal governments don't actually have enough to talk about anymore um, because of the deregulation of the economy. And politicians always like to talk. So um, they, they have sort of entered into this space of that's been traditionally uh, that of the states because uh, they can sort of make a sort of, you know, hit and run intervention and, you know, hand, hand, and make an announcement about, about money and, uh, you know, sort of look like they're being great guys, but it, all it does is create more noise around who's doing what. Mm. Except around tax. Except around tax, yes. exactly. Mm. We know who's in charge of that. Mm. Um, we're seeing an increasing split between left and right in Australia, as well as in Europe and, of course, America with the election of Trump. Um, do our parliamentary structures uh, worsen this divide? And um, do you think that Australian politicians are really equipped to deal with that sort of split? Uh, I think the split probably... Uh, at its heart relates to um, growing inequality uh, and to uh, a growing uh, divide in, the, in what the left and the right think governments should do, how big a role they should have. Um, 
so I think it's sort of one of those chicken and egg things. I think I, I just am firmly of the view that, you know, the, the sort of analysis you see in something like Thomas Piketty's uh, work um, supports the view that there is an inevitability in politics about greater government intervention, um, you know, like in the pendulum of things. I don't know if we talked about this a couple of years ago, but, you know, that we've had the sort of tide going out on the role of government um, and, uh, and on interventions in people's lives. The in we've now got to this point of uh, where there's massive inequality, the greatest since the beginning of the 20th century, um, and it's created this terrible unrest um, political self-interest suggests to me that both sides of politics are recognising this, but they have to actually learn the language to actually come back to the centre on it. Um, and I, I, I argue that the coalition sort of had a bit of a road to Damascus experience on this at the last budget, where they suddenly, you know, started schmoozing up to Medicare and school funding and childcare and things like that after all the years of um, hair shirts and, um, and uh, whips. And um, I think that that, my sense is that that's, despite the fact that there's, you know, the division still seems to be widening, my sense is that self-interest will actually close it again over the next four or five years. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you, you have very diverse, a very diverse personality on Twitter. Sometimes you tweet about being in the choir and, and singing and about Tosca and but you also have some very astute political tweets and I picked up one last week which I thought was fantastic so you said and you must have been overseas when you did this you said thought from afar the Nats instrumental in 2009 in bringing down Turnbull Malcolm even without a vote in the Liberal Party room but he is powerless to get them to get rid of their own mortally wounded leader now. They sure occupy a sweet spot in politics. Shame about the rest of us, end of quote. Can you unpack that for us a little bit further? Um, um, I'm, I'm having a bit of a fatwa against the gnats at the moment. Um, I've, I've written another piece today. I don't know if it's gone up yet, but um, I'm sort of waiting for you know the incomings. Um, look, uh, if the Nats were the Greens, there would be complete howls of outrage about the fact that they have this unbelievable hold over the coalition. Um, uh, the, you know, sometimes the Liberal Party must wake up in the morning saying, what have we done? You know, like, what have we done? Um, because you've got, uh, you know, structurally, you've got this sort of extraordinary... Um, Thing where I remember at the time that um, Tony Abbott beat um, Turnbull, and it was true, the, the Nats were so important in persuading um, people in the Liberal Party room to, um, to dump Malcolm. Uh, but the Deputy Prime Ministership is basically a figment of people's imaginations. It's not an actual job. In fact, it, it was... Oh, it's true. I mean, like, it was a job sort of created for the coalition and Labor never really took it seriously until the Rudd-Gillard team came in because you'll remember there was a deal done where uh, Julia 
said she'd back Kevin as as the as the sort of dreamed team of, of the time, and it, there was sort of this weird thing where you'd go around to um, like you'd go to a dinner and there'd always be the two of them and everybody in the prime minister's office would say, "Can we get you a car, DPM?" You know, and uh, something you know, "Would you like some more dip DPM?" And go, oh, DPM, what's this? <laughs> um, so, but there was so the the Nats with this really small number of seats are able to. Um, maintain, particularly when conditions are tight, this hold on the government. And they've got no sense of discipline whatsoever. Um, there's nothing that Turnbull could do. I mean, he could sack uh, Barnaby Joyce as Minister for Infrastructure, but that wasn't going to actually produce any result. I mean, I don't think the ban on six really worked either, uh, but there was nothing he could do about it. He was completely powerless, and as has been the case right through his prime ministership, um, because of the deal he did with the with the Nats uh, when he when he became prime minister, I think the weird thing is that having delivered all of those things that uh, or or those issues being resolved like same sex marriage, which were part of his agreement with them, I think he thought he was safe. But you know he didn't count on the exceptional self indulgence of Barnaby Joyce, which I think has just been a complete national disgrace. Um, you know it used to be the case that if you were a uh, an embarrassment to or a, a distraction for the government, you stood down. Um, and Barnaby Joyce still sees himself as a victim in all of this. So, um, and today, uh, you, the discussion wasn't, well, thank God we've got this behind us. It was, what's Barnaby going to do now? What's George Christensen going to do now? And you're just thinking, haven't these guys been paying attention to the way people have just been disgusted by the self-indulgence here? and they should just pull their heads in and actually just let the government get on with governing? Well, I guess that's because they see themselves as core to the government governing. Uh, they see themselves um, in, in a position of capacity to blackmail the government. Um, and, but I think it's more than that. They actually don't understand the concept of collective responsibility, which uh, I think is something that for a long time haunted Labor. Um, they've now, you know, got the hang of that. Uh, but I think um, there are a lot of MPs for whom the idea that they actually have a collective responsibility to the stability of the government mm. is actually quite a foreign concept. Yeah. And I guess the, the Barnaby Joyce saga has been really interesting to watch and there's been a lot of speculation about... Um, what would, have, what would have happened if that would have been a female minister having an affair with a man 20 years younger than her, or 25 years younger than her and becoming pregnant to that, you know, in that relationship? How do you think that would have played out? A little bit differently? Uh, well, it might have played out differently. I've, I've got a, a first threshold question. If... Uh, Barnaby Joyce's staffer wasn't pregnant, would anybody give a bugger? Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I just... I mean, I've been out of the country through most of this, thank goodness. <laughs> um, but people have affairs in Canberra all the time. Now, I'm not saying it's good, bad or anything, it's just the truth. I don't know... I th there's something... There are all sorts of really weird aspects of this particular story, um, uh, including... Give us the inside goss. 
Um, Go on, Chatham House rules, everyone. Except for the podcast, yeah. Uh, <laughs> are you listening, podcast? Um, look, oh, yeah. There were... There, there are all sorts of versions. I mean, I mean, there's so much hypocrisy about this from the media, from politicians, from everybody. But as I said, I'm still not entirely sure exactly what, you know, the, the story kept morphing because nobody was quite sure what this was about. But I mean, things just like the Daily Telegraph, uh, which pursued it. Now you can say, well, good on them for, you know, exposing this. Well, exposing what? Um, now, just keep in mind, the woman at the centre of this, who was uh, plastered all over the front page of the Daily Telegraph, is a former, former Deputy Chief of Staff of the Daily Telegraph, which I just find just a little bit icky. Um, and uh, so I, I, I sort of, as I said, I wonder, it, it was this, the fact that she was pregnant seems to have been the, the crucial difference. And, you know, well... I mean, I, I, I don't sort of really get it. I mean, I, to me, the story was about the fact that uh, Barnaby started to have an affair with this woman um, who I don't know. Um, I think it was a really ill-advised thing for him to do. It was a really ill-disciplined thing for him to do. Um, it's an unprofessional thing to do. But once he had embarked on this course, the appropriate thing for him to do would be to say to the Prime Minister, look, there's something you need to know um, as you know, the marriage isn't, you know, I mean, whatever. But I'm now in this relationship with this woman and it might become an issue. Um, and uh, it's not clear that he ever did that. I think there are questions about whether, as a result, he was forcing people around him out of loyalty to protect him. You know, uh, you saw a lot of staff leave out of his office, uh, which goes to dysfunction in the government. Um, and I just don't think when you're a political leader, you can, you know, okay, fall in love with somebody, not fall in love with somebody, bonk somebody, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is you do, but you have to say, wait a minute, I'm still going to be held accountable for this and I still have a responsibility. And to me, that's what the story is about. But do you think that it's set a new precedent for the media getting more involved in politicians' private lives? Well, I think thanks to the Prime Minister, it's basically made it official. You know, it's, it's now part of the code of conduct that you're not supposed to sleep with um, one of your staff. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to be going there, um, but, you know, for the tabloids and, and journalists um, in other parts of the media, they'll be under immense pressure to be doing this. And how do you follow that story? I mean... Well, one thing about the fact that um, Barnaby's partner is pregnant, uh, which is potent, is that like there's there's a there's a physical image of it, you know. Um, short of you know slamming, you know, banging on a door and catching people in bed together, how do you take a picture of people misbehaving? Um, so I think it's one of those things where images are sort of very very powerful, um, but you know. There's a lot of criticism of the media that we, you know, knew about it and didn't report it. Well, we knew that there were rumours about it, but what was the story? I'm still not sure what the story was. Um, you know, she was pregnant, she wasn't pregnant. Um, uh, you know, she'd had an abortion was another version of it. She had cancer was another version. Um, and if other journalists want to go there, that's fine, but 
I'm not going to do it. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'll open it up. You're one of the panellists for the McKinnon Prize mm -hmm. in Political Leadership, which is a new prize, yes. which is terrific, a great initiative. Um, did reading the nominations give you any hope for the future of Australian governance? I'll open that for it's you. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm multi-skilling here because okay. I'm a girl. Um, I, yeah, it did. Um, I, I think it'll be a really good thing to see how it develops. Um, it was interesting that there were not more conservative, thanks, Carol, uh, more conservative uh, candidates put up, uh, which was. We, we, we judged the, the prize today. Um, who, no, who nominated the...? Um... Um, anybody was able to nominate them, um, and um, Melbourne University sort of essentially tried to put out the word that, um, you know, you should nominate people who are successful. Um, it was a, an, an, an eclectic bunch of uh, nominations, I think. Um, uh, some of them really obvious, some of them not at, at all obvious. Um, but I think there are a lot of really good young politicians, uh, certainly in federal politics, uh, and I think also in local and state politics based on some of the people we looked at today. Uh, and it's a shame that people don't get to see more of them, but a lot of really smart young people on both sides of the federal parliament um, who are trying really hard and trying to do worthwhile things. Do you think they get corrupted by the par uh, political machinery of the parties? Uh, I don't know that they get corrupted by it, but I think it's very hard for them to find the space to, um, to put new ideas forward and things. But it is happening. Um, and I suppose I would uh, give us examples of that, um, more the Labor side at the moment, uh, and the fact that they've been able to develop policies on things like superannuation, uh, negative gearing, um, you know, th things which were regarded as completely untouchable. Um, there's actually sort of some space to move. So, you know, it, it does happen. That's very encouraging. I'm going to open up for questions now. I saw there was a question over here. In terms of... Um, the position that she held. My understanding from the media was that um, she was actually given positions by Barnaby Joyce um, in preference to other people. How does that then go into the transparency of decision-making for positions where other people are applying for the jobs and, and you don't know that that undertone is actually making her get a position over other people that maybe far more qualified. Mm. Um, well, obviously it's not good, but um, I would just observe that I, ha I haven't been here for the last two weeks, so I haven't seen all the discussion about what she did or didn't do. There've been, as far as I, can, as far as I know, there've been lots of assertions made which have been denied. I'm presuming that quite a lot of it will come out of estimates. Um, but I'd also just observe we've also got this sort of bizarre situation with uh, the head of Borderface, um, Roman Kradvlig, um, and you know, apparently getting a, a job for his girlfriend, um, and uh, you know the issue not being resolved. Now, that's if that's what he's done, that's not good. Um, it's not clear to me whether um, Vicky Campion got jobs in preference to other people, or whether jobs were created for her. 
um, you know, and when that happened uh, and whether and what his involvement was, that's still very grey. And I, I but I, I just haven't been here and been on top of the details enough. But you know, w without a doubt, the principle you talk about, talk about is correct. Yeah. Because the Prime Minister certainly hasn't come out and said anything about making that more watertight or, or more transparent for future positions. No, he hasn't. Um, but, and once again, I suppose the, the question there is, you know, uh, whoever was making the decision, you know, did the people who were making the decision about give, giving her a job know the circumstances in which she was being put forward for the job? Um, if, if Barnaby Joyce isn't telling his colleagues that there's a potential conflict there. You know, he's basically compromising everybody else in the government who's involved in that decision-making process. Still on the theme of accountability, you're sitting in front of a wall of very powerful slogans. Yes, I like them. <laughs> of women who are organising themselves to hold politicians to account. Nasty women for one progress. Politician like one politician in particular for that wall, but uh, the way that has been in the media that we've tried to do it here, obviously, is the bonk ban, as you mentioned. But I'm interested in, you mentioned the ways that people are responding to trust issues globally. How are people around the world organised, particularly women, organising to hold politicians to account as the standards start to change on what we do expect and don't expect from our political leaders? How are women doing that? Anybody. Oh, how I've got one example for women there. Um, so, sorry, so the question is, how are people doing doing that? How should we hold politicians how should to account? It? Yep. Um, look, I think all you can do... I mean, there, there are so many vehicles now um, to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, social media being the obvious example, um, where, uh, where you can hone in on a particular issue very quickly, organise yourselves, but not just... just not rant and rave, you know, actually have, you know, really find a way of, you know, being quite clinical about, okay, what are the issues here and just, you know, addressing, right, here, here is this issue, here, here are the following five things that are wrong with it, this is what, you know, the government or the party or whatever it is of the day has to do to address this shortcoming. So I think this, the capacity to actually, you know, identify an issue um, and, and go for it is, uh, is, is sort of much greater in a way than it ever has been in the past. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that that's all you have to do. You have to, you know, just sort of marshal your forces. And you look at something like the way GetUp's worked on various campaigns, it's a real classic case in point, but um, I think that you just, you just have to go for them. Um, but you have to do it in a, not just an emotional way, you know, you have to actually sort of marshal. I mean, the emotions, like something like the Me Too campaign, um, you know, it, it creates a, a groundswell, but it, it will just collapse unless there is something more articulate backing it about, okay, you know, men are being assholes, what do we do about it, you know, and sort of saying these are the things in, in a practical sense that... that um, and it's not, as you say, bonk band you know, sort of silly ideas um, aren't the answer. You've got to just think of a few really sort of clever ideas. I think the women mar women's marches in the US have been enormously successful in galvanising a movement 
that is very sort of focused on on policies that the Trump administration is bringing down that they find really objectionable. Mm. And I think it goes to your point about doing it in an intelligent but a loud way. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, what, was, what was the hats? The, um, the pink... The pink. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the pink hats was great, but, like, once they'd all had pink hats, it was... That wasn't called pink hats, I know, but sorry, I'm a bit, bit tired. Um, but, you know, you had to have some, you have to have sustainability in, in a, in a, in a right. pressure. But I think that that has given strength to something like the Me Too movement. You know, it's sort of underpinned all of these, you know, these other things that have, have come out. Mm. Was there a question over here? Um, when, two parts of the question. First part, do you think we'll have a federal election this year? And if so, do you think that voting patterns of women will be different from they've been in the past? Uh, my working presumption is we won't have an election this year. Um, and I'd answer the second one by asking you a question, which is why would you think they would be different? I think women are finding a voice. I think that there's a lot of women who are stepping out and speaking out for the first time in their lives. And I'm hopeful that they're going to think about that when they cast their ballot. Mm. I hope that that movement will be sustained, um, that it's just the beginning, not the end. Sure. Um, well, you might be right. Um, for it to have an impact, the political parties have to go, oh, women are stepping out. Um, so they've got to be aware that that's happening. I suppose um, we don't... I mean, Mr Scales over here would probably have a better idea than I would because um, he's a polling guru. Um, but um, I, I haven't seen anything to date which tells me that there has been that shift in the way women are thinking about their vote. Now, it might might be underway and I've just missed it because I've been doing other things, but I, I haven't sort of seen or sort of sensed that so far. But that doesn't mean that, you know, given everything that's been happening, it might not happen. I think we might make this the last question. So we've spoken a lot about, like, values-based policymaking, but in terms of evidence-based policymaking, like, you said that... Um, Angela Merkel isn't very popular for her pragmatism, and I guess we could frame that as populism, but if we choose to look at it as you know, policy based on evidence and research, how do we shift that public opinion so that we're making good policy rather than just popular policy? Um, well, that partly requires good advocacy. Um, I mean, despite... I mean. I suppose my view of Malcolm Turnbull is he is a flawed prime minister. He's not a terrible prime minister, despite the fact everybody hates him. You know? um, he's not a terrible prime minister uh, in the sense that uh, I think he has tried to put a proper policy process back in uh, back in the box and and make it work. Now it hasn't always worked. Um, he's taken some shocker decisions. In, on the run in a panic, uh, but uh, you know things like the Gonski education stuff. Um, I would say is is a really good exercise in trying to do 
policy will. Um, and so I, I think you've got to sort of give marks for that, but it does still require having the political skills to, I mean, it should be self-evident, you know, and that's what you know, somebody like Paul Keating always said, you know, good policy is good politics. And um, this is what we've lost. We've lost this capacity to, uh, the sort of confidence of politicians to say, look, this is actually a really good policy idea. Um, and, you know, we've thought about all the details of this and, you know, and just and just to, to stick with it, presume that there will be, you know, incoming missile fire about it, because there, there always will be, because people won't always like it. But um, I think all you can do is just still try to do good policy and then say, OK, well, that's my starting point rather than the politics. Uh, and so I would sort of argue that um, the extent to which a government or an opposition does good policy, and Labor's been doing the same thing where they've come up with good policy and I think it's ended up being good politics for them. You know, talked about super and negative gearing. So um, it's just a matter of getting the reward system in place where politicians are going, oh, actually, we're getting rewarded for good policy, not for being, you know, populist and just jumping at shadows. So um, I, I, I don't know why I'm such an incurable optimist, but I sort of am. It's <laughs> wonderful. OK, and in view of you being an incurable optimist, how long do you think it'll be before we have another female prime minister? Oh dear, that no, sounds like a long no, time. No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the field. Uh, look, it, it might not be all that long. Um, I mean, I don't think it's. Uh, I'm going to sound like the Pantene ad if I'm not careful here. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Um, uh, but I think, uh, I think it, I think it won't be all that long. But it, it just requires the right person in the right circumstances, and um, uh, I'm not sure that there's anybody in that frame in the next two or three years. Uh, but um, people in politics erupt out of the, out of the walls, you know, where, where you least expect them. So um, I don't think you can rule it out. Well, that is encouraging. So please join me in thanking Laura. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.